Good morning. Today's scripture is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under your feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Well, you know, for about 20 years or so, our society has been using a phrase that I'm sure you've heard a lot lot of times and seen various places, and that is, don't judge me. Don't judge me is what you say when, or what someone says when they want to express themselves usually in some really opinionated or strong way, or maybe they're about to do something they know they shouldn't do, usually anticipating that judgment actually is going to come their way. So on social media, someone might post a picture of themselves eating a whole cake for breakfast or wearing flip-flops to a wedding or something, and they might try to cut off any potential criticism by saying, you know, don't judge me. One person on the Urban Dictionary defines don't judge me as what she says when I get drunk in the middle of the day and watch Blue's Clues. So, you know, don't judge me, right? Now, whether those people realize it or not, those who use this expression, the roots of that are actually from our passage today, from Matthew 7.1. It's actually like many of the other uh, parts of the Sermon on the Mount that have become so woven into culture and have changed kind of in, in that weaving end that people don't even realize. Like if you, if you get a speeding ticket in the state of Kentucky, I, a friend told me, then what, what happens at the end? At the end of the training you have to go to, at least a few years ago, is it said, treat, others, treat other drivers as you'd want to be treated. And I thought, they probably don't even realize they're quoting the Sermon on the Mount there, because that's, uh, of course, the golden rule. Well, so too with Matthew 7.1. It's kind of woven its way into very much out of context, and I think you'll see it doesn't mean quite that, but still, that's something people say a lot. A little closer to home... Um, There are some churches that would adopt Matthew 7, 1, and 2 as their sort of main motto. I have seen church marquee signs where it says on there, don't judge lest you be judged as their kind of lead foot. And it's not difficult to imagine that a church that makes that their kind of primary statement is probably pretty open-minded on almost anything, right, in terms of the uh, doctrines and and moral practices, etc. Because if that's your main thing you want to say, then that probably says a lot. Jesus did say it, though, right? He does say, don't judge or you too will be judged. Here's the question. Is our culture's don't judge me or is that kind of, you know, a main church philosophy? Is that what Jesus meant by our text today? I think most of us would intuitively know that the answer to that is no. I mean, I think Most of us, whether you're a Christian or not today, I think most people would say there are right and wrong things in the world. Pedophilia, murder, abuse, stealing, deceit, just to name a few. And so whenever we say that something is wrong, that is a kind of judgment, isn't it? You're you're saying this is right and this is wrong. So that doesn't seem to be then exactly what Jesus is saying. So if that's not what he means, what does he mean by saying, don't judge lest you be judged? Well, that's a question I want us to explore together today. 
for just a few minutes while we look at this really very short section from the Sermon on the Mount. Before we get into that question and answer and exploration of it, I want to make sure we understand that these verses are coming to us in the midst of a, a whole bunch of things that Jesus has been saying that we call the Sermon on the Mount. If you're new here, we've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and once we have gotten to Matthew 5 to 7, we call that section the Sermon. And let me just sum up for you what the Sermon on the Mount is about. I'll, I'll describe it this way. I think this is the simplest way to describe it, that in the Sermon on the Mount, King Jesus is forming an alternative community of disciples whose hearts and habits reflect him. Let me say that again. I think it's important to get that, that that the wise King Jesus is forming an alternative community of of kingdom disciples, of, of disciples of him who have hearts and habits that look like him because he himself is the exact representation of who God the Father is. And so all the things we've been seeing in the Sermon on the Mount, or if you go back and read it, he addresses issues of sexual desire and divorce and remarriage and, and godly actions like helping the poor and prayer and fasting and, and money and anxiety. And all these things, what's kind of holding it all together is Jesus seeking to shape our hearts and our habits to be like him so that we might experience fullness of life. And that's true of our verses today as well. These verses that seem very negative are all part of that same goal. So let's look a little bit more closely at them. If you have a Bible, you can look there. It's in your bulletin. We'll put it on the screen as well. That first verse again, do not judge or you too will be judged. It's a big statement. What does Jesus mean? Well, sometimes, especially with a really big statement, it can be helpful to ask, what is it not saying? That is when, when you know, it becomes quickly apparent, I think, if you look at the rest of the Bible, that what he's not saying is that, as we were just saying a moment ago, that we never form an opinion about what's right or wrong. I mean, clearly, there are rights and wrongs. The Bible is full of that. Jesus has been saying all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, to be a hypocrite is bad, to be inauthentic, to be doing things just for the praise of others and not out of a whole heart towards God. All these things are not good. They should be said as not good. We're going to see at the end of our verses here, Jesus is going to refer to some people, shockingly, as dogs and pigs. So obviously that requires some kind of discernment or judgment about that. And if you keep reading in Matthew, we'll see that Jesus is going to say there's bad teaching in the world, the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that you need to avoid. And then in chapter 18, we'll see that Jesus is going to say to his gathered people, his church, his disciples, you actually have authority to decide who's in and who's out based on what is right and what is wrong. So don't judge me or, uh, you know, whatever, some other way people might apply it can't just mean everything goes, obviously, right? That's not, it's clear not what Jesus is saying. So for example, if someone comes to your door and says they have land to sell you in the Everglades, or you get that Nigerian prince email asking you for some money, you don't say, well, I guess I'm not supposed to judge, so I guess I just have to give them our money. I mean, that's clearly not what it's saying. Or imagine, if you will, if you were, um, you know, one of your kids hits another one of your kids, and when you say to them, hey, you don't hit each other, and what if they turned to you and said, hey, don't judge me lest you be judged, right? <laughs> or imagine you're at a play date, and one, somebody else's kid hits your kid, and you say to the, to the mother or father that's there, hey, uh, you do something about it, and, and she or he turns to you and says, hey, don't judge me lest you be judged. We, we obviously know there's, there's more to life than that. It's a little bit more complex than that. So it can't just mean anything. 
But I think part of the problem is that our English word judge actually can mean two very different things. And I think we confuse them. Our English word judge can mean condemn, right? To condemn someone, but it can also mean just to discern, to discern what is right and wrong. And it's really easy for us to confuse these things together. And especially, I think, when people approach this as just saying, don't judge me, I think a lot of times what's actually right about what they're saying, and this is the challenging part to you and me, is that in that sense, we're not called to condemn anyone else. You and I are not anyone else's judge, ultimately. God alone is their judge. We didn't create anybody else in an ex nihilo kind of sense. We, we are, our, our calling is very different. We're not people's judges. I think James chapter 4, who's reflecting on Jesus' words, says it this way, anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it. You're sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, that is God, the one who's able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So in that sense, I think we should feel challenged that we never have the right to condemn someone else. But we are still called to discern, and it's along those lines that then Jesus pushes this a little farther, and let's look at what he says then in verse 2. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Again, Jesus is not making a blanket statement against discerning as we've seen, but he is saying something that should challenge you and me very deeply. He's saying that we need to be very careful in how and why we evaluate other people and situations. We need to realize that our discerning must always be fair and merciful. How do we know that? Well, we should only judge, he says in verse 2, with the same measuring stick or the same criteria that we would want to be judged ourselves. And and do you hear how that's really just a, a flipped version of the golden rule? Treat others as you would want to be treated? This is saying the same thing. He's saying, however you and I evaluate people and situations... You better be careful there because whatever way you think it's okay to do that, it better be rooted in how you and I would want to be treated ourselves. And how do you and I want to be treated? Well, we want to be treated fairly and with the benefit of the doubt. And in fact, generously and kindly. We don't want to be judged when, when we mess up and we don't want someone to assume that they understand all that's really going on in our lives or our story. When we mess up or screw up, we want to be treated with mercy, not just justice, right? And these are, Jesus is saying, whatever way you think you're okay to evaluate other people, you need to make sure you'd be willing to be evaluated that way as well. This actually connects very closely to things Jesus has already said in the sermon. Do you remember back in chapter 5, one of the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the merciful, for they will find mercy. How you treat other people, whether in mercy or not, is what will come back to you. Jesus says, you and I in the Lord's Prayer must forgive others if we want to be forgiven by God. As John Wesley, I think, summed it up well, he said that the judging that Jesus is condemning here is when we think about another person in any way that is contrary to love. Any way that we might evaluate anybody else or any situation that is contrary to love is not doing it as Jesus teaches. 
In fact, ultimately, the standard we should be using to measure and evaluate others, if, we, if and when that rare case where we really have to do that, is the way that God views us himself, his rebellious, sinful, broken creatures. How does God treat us? He treats us very generously, very mercifully. Do you remember back in chapter 5 when Jesus is talking about how central it is that we not only love our friends, anybody can love your friends, but that we need to actually love our enemies? Do you remember what he says? He said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God sees everything. He sees brokenness and wickedness and rebellion. And how does he show up? He shows up causing rain and sun blessings and fertility and, and life, that means that image of rain and sun is causing the plants to grow and causing our lives to be full, even those who are unrighteous and evil. That's how God shows up. And that's the ultimate standard for us. So too, Jesus is saying in our text today, we have to be very self-aware and very careful whenever we think we're going to render any kind of discernment or judgment or evaluation of another person because our human tendency is to be the exact opposite of God, to not show up mercifully and kindly. And Jesus is speaking very clearly about that. About 10 years ago, the Barna group did a survey where they asked 1,000 people who were not Christians, people who said, identified, I'm not a Christian, and they asked them, what do you think about Christians? That is, how do you experience Christians in your life or in society? And do you know what their answers were? Number one, judgmental. Number two, hypocritical. Number three, anti-gay. And that was 10 years ago, in a a time that it was not even as polarized as today. Now, some of that is unavoidable, because Christians have always been and will always be maligned unfairly in culture, just because as a Christian, we do believe there are some right and wrong things in the world, and that's clear in our scriptures, right? And so Jesus was maligned, his disciples were maligned. We in America, we've had a couple hundred years of a kind of really lucky experiment, as it were, where we haven't experienced that much persecution, but most Christians throughout history and most Christians today are not popular in their cultures, right? And this means that inevitably we are going to be maligned and misrepresented. But what's disturbing, I think, and shocking is that the primary ways that non-Christians experience Christians a lot of times is actually our fault. It's not just because we're humbly standing for something. It's that Christians are often hated and despised because they are judgmental and harsh and non-merciful in our evaluations and speech towards the outside the world or towards other Christians. I mean, sometimes it's the most vitriolic when Christians fighting each other. When that happens, friends, we can be sure that is not from God. Because Jesus makes very clear that when the world sees Christians, they should think, wow, those people are loving. Wow, not wow, those people are harsh and judgmental. Some other places in the New Testament, 
make this clear. First Peter, for example, says that we should keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds, truly good deeds, as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Or Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds not your harsh criticisms, your good deeds, and glorify your Father in heaven. Or John 13, how will people in the world know what, who's a Christian? By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples because you're a particularly astute cultural critic. No, if you love one another. So in 7.2, back in Matthew, Jesus quickly cuts to our hearts once again, only be willing to evaluate and analyze others in the same way that you and I want to be evaluated and analyzed. And that's pretty challenging. But I know my heart, and I think by extension I know your hearts, and I know that I could even kind of keep this from challenging me by saying, yeah, I'm willing to, because there's a bunch of areas where I think I'm pretty good at stuff, right? Like not getting much sleep or whatever else it is. I'm, I'm good at some things. And so it's easy for me, and I have come to this self-awareness, thankfully, by my very faithful wife, who often has pointed out to me that I have a lot of space for mercy for people that are broken in the same way I am. For the people who aren't good at the things I'm good at, I'd be willing to say, yeah, we should be evaluated by this because in my mind, I'm evaluating, I'm, I think I passed that test. And so it's easy for me to be judgmental towards people who aren't good at the same things I'm good at. But Jesus doesn't leave me there and doesn't leave you there either. He pushes it even further in these next verses. Let's look at chapter 7, verses 3 to 5 again. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And here's the image I want you to have. This is the image I want to be ingrained in your head. You can bring this up at my funeral, right? Because it is a ridiculous image. And just like that, you laughed. I'm sure Jesus' original audience laughed too. Because it's a crazy image. The idea that we could have a plank in our eye and then we think we can operate on somebody else, Right? And Jesus is a very wise teacher, and like Spurgeon said, you tickle the clam with the knife so that you can insert it. And so, too, he uses this ridiculous image to help us begin to kind of relax and be self-aware, and then says, you hypocrite. The strongest word he uses anywhere. Why? Because you and I must never undertake evaluation of others without first examining ourselves. You and I have to pay attention to ourselves before we ever think that we can begin to operate on other people's problems. Jesus tells us this, uses this powerful image. 
that I hope is ingrained in your head because it is such a universal human tendency. In fact, this tendency to evaluate others and not ourselves is so universal that we find this kind of same proverb that Jesus uses here, we find it in all other, other kinds of literature, Greek literature, Roman literature, Jewish literature. For example, Horace said it this way, while you see your own faults with eyes bleared and unanointed, why is it that in the faults of your friends, your vision is as sharp as an eagle's? Or Seneca, I love this one. You observe the pimples of others when you yourselves are overgrown with a vast number of ulcers. That's pretty vivid. <clears throat> or a modern commentator, it's a law that we consistently undervalue the size of our own faults and overvalue the size of others. This is challenging. Because this is universal to us as humans. And Jesus uses what I cannot imagine a more powerful image to remind us. And so this week, as I've been sort of paying attention to that, it's caused me to ask some questions that this may raise some questions for you. And you might have other questions as well. But here's a couple of questions that have come to mind. So why is that tendency in myself to judge others, to to evaluate harshly, even to just wanting to be evaluating others at all, why is that so strong in me? Well, I've come up with a couple of reasons. Maybe you could think of some others too. One is, I think, insecurity. I mean, if you notice that one source of judging others in my heart, and I think probably for many of you is as well, is, is when you feel jealous maybe or insecure about what others have. So maybe someone is better looking or more successful in their job or has more money one of the ways that our hearts kind of process that because it makes us feel something negative and insecure and lesser, one of the ways that we often not even consciously try to get away from those negative feelings is we criticize that person. We say something bad about them or we think something bad because then that'll somehow bring them down and we don't have to pay attention to that negativity in ourselves. I can't believe they spent $60,000 on a car. She certainly likes to wear dresses that show off a bit, doesn't she? Sure, he's smart and seems nice, but when he uses such big words, I think he's just really showing off. Well, it's easy for their kids to do well in school. It must be nice to come from a rich family that never worked a day in their lives. Any of those phrases sound familiar? I recorded those between the services. No, just kidding. <laughs> The, you'll be getting an email after this. No, those are things that I can imagine myself saying very easily, and I bet if you're honest, you've heard similar things in your own heart. I'd invite you to pay attention to those kind of those sentences you hear yourself saying and honestly ask yourself, why do you feel that way? Like, what's motivating? That's not just coming out of nowhere. That's being motivated by something. And it may be some lack you feel, some insecurity, some jealousy that's driving these judgments. And I would just say to you in that, turn to the Lord, because there's no life there in that. You're, you're not going to get better by bringing other people down. You're only going to find the Lord to provide your needs, truly. And in that, you'll begin to find life. There's no life there in that kind of plank-eyed way of judging others. I think another reason that we tend to judge each other and evaluate each other even is because a lot of times we mistake up tightness for uprightness. And it's very easy to mistake uptightness for uprightness. This universal human tendency, in fact, Jesus' number one enemies are people 
were not liberal people or broken people. They were self-consciously very religious people, the Pharisees, who really valued the fact that they were keeping an eye on everything in themselves and, by extension, then in others. They were very uptight about things, and they, that became, in their minds, the same thing as their uprightness. And unfortunately, in the name of religion, often insecure and other upright or uptight people will often applaud someone when they're uptight. Like, that becomes like a badge of honor, that you're particularly strict on whatever it is, but friends, again, there's no life there. That's not the way that Jesus is, is promoting that uptightness is the same thing as uprightness. It leads towards a judgmental attitude always. You know, another question that all this makes me think about, and, and this, I, this was helped by one of our other pastors at, at J-Town, at our church down there, Pastor Lyle, this question of, you know, what happens when we sort of do start to judge other people or evaluate other people, there's a progression, I think, that goes from bad to worse. First, if you notice this in yourself, I've noticed it, that we begin to fill in assumptions about what someone else is doing and why they're doing it, assumptions about their motives and their character, things that we actually don't really know. And we begin to fill in things about what story or what narrative is going on, what they must have said and what they must have thought. You actually don't know those things. I don't know those things. And it's very natural to begin to fill those in. And then <clears throat> what I think especially we do is we tend to, someone that we're evaluating or judging, we, we tend to slot them into just this, they're, they're like a one-sided, one-dimensional, flat Stanley kind of person, right? They're, they're just one thing, that one choice, that one bad opinion they have, that one doctrine they don't like, that therefore they're bad, right? That's just, we just have these really strict categories. Would you want to be treated that way, Right? that on one view, one mistake, one opinion, one, that that's all you are? No, but that's what we do to other people. We slot them into this sort of singularity that's not true of any of us. And then, then this progression goes, then I think we tend to advertise our judgments of other to other people. So we, we slander them, usually mostly with our friends who are gonna pat us on the back and affirm our judgments and maybe even applaud us in these judgments, right? And then we look down on them and talk with them with a slant. And then the final step of this is that we just assume that God agrees with us in our judgment, right? And that is the height of self-deception, that your opinion is God's opinion. And Jesus' plank eye picture reminds us that if we live this way, it is just going to go from bad to worse. But, but here's the good news. If we will remember what Jesus says by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we can begin to retrain our habits and hearts to not be so inclined to evaluate other people and especially not to merciless judgment. And when we do that, we will begin to find life. When we listen to Jesus, we will begin to find a new way of being that is life-giving, not negative. And, and of course, the progression then goes positively instead of negatively. Because you see, if you and I will focus on plank removal rather than sawdust removal in others, one of the things that happens is once you and I examine ourselves honestly and humbly and deeply, I think we find that that judgmental attitude and negative energy dissipates. I've seen this. Have you seen this? Like, See, here's the, here's the danger of this, is that talking, thinking bad things about other people, evaluating other people, and then talking with other people about other people, 
that has a lot of energy in it. I mean, that feels, you feel something. You feel good, actually. There's all this kind of stuff, and you got people that are going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you feel a lot in that situation. And a lot of us are longing for some kind of feeling. And so there has an energy there. But friends, it's not a life-giving energy. It's a death-dealing energy. But if instead, if we will look and do the humble, plank-eyed examination before the Lord, all that negative energy will dissipate. And then... If you really do need to do spec removal at that point, and that's what verse 5 gives the opportunity or, or gives the idea that maybe there would, and it's going to be far less often than you think, right? Because if you really do the plank eyed work, I found that I, there's almost never where I feel like I need to really evaluate somebody else once I've examined myself. But if you really do, maybe it's a child or uh, a friend or someone that you feel like, okay, I really do need to speak into this situation, then you've prayed about it, you've done your own self-examination work, then... If you really still need to do that, you'll be able to do it from a place of love. You'll be able to do it from a place that is life-giving to them. You're not being motivated by all this negative energy that then comes out sideways on people. No, if you do the work yourself, if I do the work myself, then if you really still need to say something, you'll do it to build the person up, not to destroy. Here's a good rule for life. If you're angry or agitated or anxious about someone else's choices or beliefs or lifestyle, then I don't think you're ready to evaluate them. If you've got all this kind of negative emotion going on about it, then stop and wait and do the examination of yourself. And then if you still are really before the Lord and not driven by anxiety and negative energy, then I think you can be of help to others. I love how Scott McKnight sums this up. He says, Jesus creates, in all this teaching, Jesus creates self-awareness that leads to self-judgment. That leads to humility, which in turn leads to repentance and sanctification. And this leads to the kind of humility that then treats other sinners with mercy. And it creates a kingdom society shaped not by condemnation, but humility, love, and forgiveness. Isn't that beautiful? That's what I want. That's what you want. You want to be part of a community that is life-giving, not a community of condemnation, and that's got to start with you and me. That's all very challenging. There's actually one more verse that we haven't said anything about yet, and it's the hardest one, Matthew 7, 6. Let's read it once more. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. We mentioned earlier that Jesus certainly makes distinctions, and here you see it. And, and dogs and pigs are simply symbols of particularly vicious and negative people who attack others. And I know that may not seem natural to you, because you know I think of dogs, we think of our little Shih Tzu we have, or some friendly pet or something. Um, and I, it is true of me, what my wife has pointed out from our culture, that it's amazing how much my husband loves this dog he didn't want, and I, I admit that's true, right? For most of us, dogs are a positive thing, but dogs in the ancient world and dogs in most parts of the world today are vicious pack animals that are destructive. So too pigs, you might think of just bacon or something, and that's all positive, right? But pigs are not people, things you want to hang out with, basically. And so the point of these metaphors is that there are violent and destructive people in the world, and there's a lot of debate among interpreters about what all this means, but I'll just give you my you know, humble opinion on this, is that the pearls and sacred things, 
not being cast or put in front of these vicious and violent people, that Jesus is calling us to discern, to be very discerning whenever we are speaking about Christian things, especially among those who are very opposed to the faith, that we just, we be very wise and keep things simple and especially don't be attacking other Christians in front of non-Christians, that we have to be very discerning. And to maybe understand how this goes together, let me put before you these Proverbs from chapter 26. Proverbs 26 says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll be just like him. Then the next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, or he'll be wise in his own eyes. So which is it? Don't answer a fool or answer a fool? Well, what this shows us is that a lot of times the teachings of the Bible are there in a balanced way that we need to learn the wisdom of what the right thing to do in this particular situation is. And I think that's what's going on in our text as well. Seven, one to five is the main point. Be very careful and be very hesitant to ever evaluate another person. And certainly don't do it mercilessly and don't be condemning other people. That's for sure, period. And then seven, six is there to remind. But at the same time, of course, there are people and situations you have to be wise and discerning about. Right? So it's this very balanced sort of thing. It's like one, one commentator described it. 7.6 keeps Jesus' anti-criticism word from being heard as an anti-discernment word. What I've kind of been saying all along, that we still need to be discerning. Now, but please don't hear me saying, well, okay, good. I'm, I'm happy now. At least I can call some people dogs and pigs, right? If that's your takeaway from this, you are completely missing the point because most of the text is saying, is very strongly reminding us of not being plank-eyed. And then the, only that like sort of minor note at the end is just reminding us, okay, in some situations, you still have to be wise. So it's beautiful. I mean, it's the wisdom of Jesus and all his beauty. So to wrap up today, what should we take away? Well, let me just apply this very briefly to our society and our personal lives. First, our lives in society. I was thinking this week again, we live in what can be called a culture of outrage. Everybody is outraged about everything, right? It's like the only virtue today is indignation. Like that's, that's the big value, that if you're indignant about this or that or this, on every side, it doesn't, I'm not talking about any particular side, every side. But let me remind you, Christians, that contentiousness is never a virtue. Indignation is not a virtue, especially when contentiousness is used in the name of Christ and supposedly the truth. So on social media, post half as much as you think you should and never, can I challenge you, never post or repost anything negative. There's no good in that. You're just spreading the negativity of the world. You should be a light in the darkness. It doesn't mean we don't stand for truth and goodness. It doesn't mean we don't oppose evil. But that's not the way you're placed to do it. You're, you're not going to help anything by posting negative, critical things. It's just not wise. There's no good that will come from that. And I think James 5 is a good life principle here for us. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. I think that's a good, wise way to remember Matthew 7, 1 to 6. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Our personal lives, what does this look like? Well, the greatest danger of this sermon, and I've seen this in myself this week, is that you could hear it and say, yeah, 
those people do stink over there, right? And you, you could push this off from yourself and say, and I found this myself saying, very judgmental towards those people who I perceive as judgmental, right? And the deep irony and the, the great self-deception of sin is that you could take away from this message, yeah, boy, I wish my spouse would have heard that one, or my kids or my mom or my friend. I'm going to send them the tape of that. That's really the recording of that. That's really good. No, this is about you. Not the person next to you, not that other person's coming to mind. This is a word to you and to me. We need to listen to Jesus' strong exhortation about evaluating others, not by applying it to others, but applying it to ourselves. So let me give you some help. Teenagers. I'm sure there are some teenagers here. You are at an age where you have come to realize your parents are not perfect, right? And even if you have good parents, you have seen plenty of flaws in them and mistakes and injustices probably, ways they haven't handled things well. Can I just ask you to listen to Jesus here? That if you give yourself over to the bitterness of embitteredness against your parents judging them, you will not find life there. There is no life. Yes, they are very imperfect, but there is no life in giving yourself over to this kind of judgment. The same will come back to you, and maybe when you're parents yourselves, right? But also just in life. And parents, maybe you're judging your children too harshly. Remember, it's kindness that leads to repentance. That's how God treats us. He treats us with kindness, and that leads to repentance. Young adults, people maybe in their 20s and in their 30s, it is a very difficult time in your life, figuring out life and relationships. Can I just ask you to resist the temptation and shun the habit of constantly evaluating and judging others? I know it's very hard because you're trying to figure yourself out in comparison to everybody else, but there's no life there. In fact, here's a little challenge that I've taken upon for myself this week and I put to you. Pay attention in all your conversations this week, what percentage of your time in a conversation is given to talking about other people? Just start paying attention to that, right? It's very challenging, especially talking negatively about other people. Don't spend your time with other people concerned about other people. If, you're more, if most of your energy is spent on concerns about other people, you're probably a jerk, right? <laughs> Instead of things you rejoice in. So be aware of that and make a step towards the good and the beautiful. Older people, maybe those you have, you have, a, you have a decade left, maybe you've got two decades left, maybe you've got three decades left, none of us know. Don't give your last decades to being upset with the world and being upset with all the younger people who are, you see are doing stupid things, just like you and I did and everybody did. Instead, give your last decades to building beautiful things and being a person of love in the world. Don't let your last years be given over to anxiety about how the world's going bad and everything. It's always that way. It's always the end of the world. Every generation feels that way. This is about you listening to Jesus and deciding that you're going to be an agent of love, not an agent of judgment in the world. 
And for all of us, when we see ourselves judging someone maybe by how they dress or how they spend their money or what they think about some issue or poor choices, choices we think they're making, maybe some personality trait you don't like, I'll, I'll say again what I've said from this pulpit more than once, mirrors before windows. Whenever you see yourself agitated by somebody else, you've got way more mirror work to do before you can use that as a window onto what's wrong with somebody else. Mirrors before windows is the place to life. So I want to end this on a negative note because, again, I, this is about life. That's why Jesus is saying these things to us. He's not, this message, Jesus' words aren't meant to make you feel bad about yourself. If you feel conviction, that's a gift. Now, enter into the life that Jesus is inviting us into. This is how he was in the world. It's how the Father is. And therefore, it's the only way that we will find life as we become his disciples, living as he does, mercifully and graciously towards others. And the greatest picture of that is what we end every sermon with, right? Every, mess, every service with is this picture of, of Jesus taking bread, breaking it with his disciples, and reminding them that his relationship to us is one of mercy, not of judgment. He takes the judgment on himself so that we receive mercy, both in the, the broken bread, which represents his body, and in the wine that he gave to his disciples and said, this is my blood. This is a cup of mercy that is overflowing. And therefore, he says in the same setting, you should love one another, right? So if you're a Christian here today, this is a remembrance and a renewal moment where as you come forward, as you take of this body and blood that represents mercy, ask God to fill you with your spirit, that you, with his spirit, so that you might begin to show up in mercy towards other people, not in constantly evaluating and judging others. And therein, you'll find life. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you are overabundant. Uh, your, your mercy is new every morning. It's bigger than our past sins. It's bigger than our sins that we're aware of, sins we don't even know we did against other people, sins we're going to do in the future. You've set your merciful, faithful love upon all those who are in you so that we might know fullness of life. I pray for those who maybe aren't Christians here today that you would let them see you by the Spirit, taste and see your goodness, bring some healing maybe of some situation where they felt really judged. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here that you would fill us all, that we might be people of great love and kindness and joy as we seek to be disciples of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.